It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live Season 2, Episode 2, starring Norman Lear, originally aired on September 25th, 1976. Hello, it's me, it's Keith, and with me as always is Matt. Good evening, Matt. Good evening. It's always a great night when it's Saturday night. And joining us tonight and being inducted into our own five-timers club, it's uh, Chili. Welcome, Chili, and congratulations. Hello, hello. Thank you for the nice smoking jacket. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to coming back every five years when someone else joins the Five Timers Club <laughs> to diminishing returns. So tonight we have uh, Norman Lear and uh, his musical guest or the musical guest is Boz Skaggs. Gentlemen, were you familiar with Norman Lear before uh, seeing this episode? Not as a performer, but as a producer, of course. You know, Pretty much the same as me. I only knew him uh, as the name in the credits. Uh, no concept of him as a performer whatsoever. I might have seen his picture once. Uh, and regarding our other guest, I think congratulations are in order. I am now pregnant with Boz Skaggs' baby. <laughs> so uh, Norman Lear was born in 1922. He's a combat vet of World War II. He got into television writing, writing uh, jokes and sketches for Martin and Lewis, and then Rowan and Martin. And those are two different Martins. He really hit it big in the 1970s when he created or co-created shows like All in the Family, Maud, Good Times, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, and Mary Hartman and Mary Hartman. His work was notable as it was very social, socially conscious, but it was still very, very funny. He's someone who's been both uh, an influence and a mentor to a lot of creators. Yeah, Lear was huge at this time, and his appearance on the show to me is almost another one like uh, the Desi Arnaz, where it's kind of a uh, elder statesman giving the nod to the younger generation coming up. Definitely had uh, big deal vibes. I got big deal vibes from uh, this episode. Same here. So this is basically a non-performer. It's, it's a writer and a producer. I, I was just thinking about how they had that guy last year uh, from politics. Said that, that was a bad gamble. Yeah, Ron Nesson, yeah. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> the elephant in the room for this one is, is Chevy Chase's injury. Last week at the end of the Ford-Carter debate, uh, Chevy fell uh, from the podium and he said to have uh, injured his groin. This has caused a lot of conversation as to whether or not Chevy actually injured himself or to the degree of which he did injure himself. At this point in time, Chevy is winding down. All the other actors, all the other performers signed five-year contracts, but Chevy was initially hired as a writer, and he only signed a one-year deal. At this point in time, there's a few possibilities. Number one is that Chevy Chase severely injured himself in the middle of the last week's episode. The second theory is that Chevy's done, and he wants as little as possible to do with the show until he can get out, but he doesn't want to totally jump out until there is something concrete in place that he can go to. The third theory, and it's probably the most likely, is that the show and the network, knowing Chevy is leaving, they're just trying to phase him out and see how a few episodes can go without him being so prominent. My first inclination would be that, obviously, I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. If it was the network who wanted to really phase him out, then they certainly did a really weird way of doing it. He was mentioned and prominently featured more in this episode, despite not being there, than Garrett was. I don't think he's hurt. I think he's probably a well-practiced performer. If I'm looking at this from NBC's perspective, I'm skeptical that some executive makes a decision that, okay, let's put our cash cow on the bench. I don't think you bench your star player when you're a suit. I think there was some weaseling. It's hard to miss Chevy in this one, because even though he's not there, his presence looms heavy. I think it was the first or second episode I did, I did with you guys. Jane literally had nothing to do with it. And they yeah. weren't spending the whole episode talking about how Jane's not there. Yeah, for sure. Everybody should be asking, where's Garrett? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know Chevy I, is the poochie. <laughs> Chevy is the poochie, yeah. So let's jump right to the show. So uh, Gilda Radner is at a desk. She says that Chevy usually takes a fall, but he's in the hospital and he heard himself making America laugh. But they're going to go on with the show because that's what Chevy would have wanted. Gilda's plan is to do the scene as it was originally planned. 
and she pretends to ask Chevy uh, to climb a ladder to change a light bulb. When Chevy's not there, she does it herself, but she's interrupted by a phone call, and it's Chevy calling from his hospital room, and we get a nice still image of Chevy. Chevy asks her not to do the fall, but Gilda says she's, she's got it covered, so she hangs up the phone. She climbs the ladder again. The phone rings, and it's again Chevy with a different still image of him from a hospital room. And he has another idea. He suggests she puts the receiver on the desk, walk it across, and drop it over the edge. Chevy gives the live from New York line over the fallen phone receiver. I thought this was good and funny, and uh, at this point, it's a pretty good way to start easing Chevy out of the show, but still getting his routine in there. I thought it was pretty good, too. It uh, was pretty snappy. Gilda, despite, you know, for all her wild characters, her her deadpan at the beginning really made me laugh. My favorite part, I thought it was so hilarious that Chevy wasn't watching the show. He's watching the Donald O'Connor story on Channel 2, I think he said. I love this. I think this is actually probably my favorite opening, which is, you know, probably saying quite a bit the fact it's the one without Chevy there. Uh, Gilda was great. It was hilarious that Chevy wasn't even watching SNL. He says he caught it while he was flipping through the channels. And uh, I also laughed at Chevy getting hurt making America laugh, which on SNL means he predated Joe Piscopo by about six years doing that exact same thing. Uh, Yeah, it was great. I thought this was really, really good use. And you could see it as making the best of a bad situation. So they go into the intro, and uh, the only major change here is that Don Pardo says it's featuring the voice of Chevy Chase rather than just Chevy Chase. And we go right to the monologue. So Norman Lear comes out. He's happy to have returned to live television. And he starts to express why he's so happy. And all of a sudden, he's just mouthing his words. And the Chiron says it's the same service that did the Ford and Carter debate that aired on television uh, the week before. And uh, that's just a joke because the audio feed went out mid-debate. So Norman Lear says actors on Saturday Night Live wonder how he gets along with his actors that he produces um, from the shows that he's in charge of. And we get a, we go to a video clip of a, a bunch of actors, including Gene Stapleton and Carol O'Connor from All in the Family, Richard Crenna and Bernadette Peters, uh, Nancy Walker from The Nancy Walker Show, and uh, Sherman Hemsley and uh, Isabel Sanford from The uh, Jeffersons and B. Arthur from Maud. And all these people are very complimentary to his face, to Norman's face, but then they do goofy things behind his back as if they can't stand him or they hate him. They want to attack him. The only exception to this is uh, Sanford and Hemsley who walk out carrying balls and chains. And then B. Arthur, um, when she leaves, she gets two guys to go in and dump some water on Lear and he doesn't even notice and he keeps talking. Um, This was okay for me. Um, It was more about seeing these big, big stars from the 70s than anything else. This must have been an extremely popular segment at the time, especially because a few people are crossing networks here. This must have been the 1970s TV equivalent of like Avengers Endgame, where everybody just showed up for a little bit at the end. The bit in the beginning where Norman comes out and then his voice goes silent, right off the bat, that kind of got me thinking, okay, this this could be good. I like the way he sort of did it. It was a little subtle. Overall, the big thing I noticed was that, not just with Norman, because I mean, he had the sweater and he's an older guy, but there was a couple other people and like, I'm a big sweater fan. I like to be comfortable, but sweaters in the 1970s were the least flattering thing in the world to the male physique. Everybody looked like shit. The bit itself, it was fine little long but it was great to see all these stars the 70s huh the cocaine is cut good the sweaters are cut bad plus the gigantic collar norman had on in every single one (laughs) he could have taken flight I, i do i guess i have to disagree in that i thought this did not bode well for him as a performer he seemed quite charming but he has he has rambly old grandpa vibes and uh that's really what's when his time on the stage he, he was going a little too slow uh, in the, the segments themselves as keith mentioned yeah i was when i was watching it i was like holy shit this must have been really something to watch and despite what i said before about rambly old grandpa when he was live on the stage and these recorded bits he was i thought he was hilarious when he was turning into the camera completely just entering a different world and unfazed by his people the people and surroundings otherwise it's like he was back in the studio yeah so he did he did a great job in that part i didn't like uh, him on the stage as much so uh lear sends over to a paid political announcement and this is written by rosie schuster and it's jimmy carter on the back of a train on basically a whistle stop tour 
talking about the time-honored democratic tradition of sexual performance in the White House. This sketch was inspired by a interview Jimmy Carter did with Playboy, where he admitted that he had committed adultery in his heart by sometimes having feelings that were unrequited for other women. Dan Aykroyd was very funny and was obviously having lots of fun with this. I, I really enjoyed this. Um, I thought it was really funny, especially once I looked into the context. Simpler time, eh? Back when that the president saying he had attractions to other women, when that was like the big political sexual scandal. Dan did seem to be having a great time. I didn't know the reference, but as the episode went on, uh, you can kind of piece it together. He's so funny. The crowd eats it up. The crowd loves him. I thought he was going to crack himself up after he talked about uh, Mrs. Truman getting it. This is just top tier SNL political parody. I know he listed a bunch of women that he was attracted to. And the only one that I remember was uh, Sherry Lewis uh, as in <laughs> yeah. Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. <laughs> These old SNLs in a lot of ways are almost like a like a mystery. You hear the jokes at the beginning of the episode and by the time you get to Weekend Update or other sketches, you start to realize what it's referring to. So you can kind of piece things together as time goes on. I didn't have to Google or search up what Jimmy Carter said. By the end of this episode, I was able to piece together, okay, he did an interview with Playboy. We have a Chiron, and it's uh, on a woman who will sit through anything. Norman Lear then comes out and introduces his daughter's favorite, Boz Skaggs, a regular collaborator with the Steve Miller Band before embarking on a solo career, or before his solo career took off. The album he was promoting at the time was called uh, Silk Degrees. It was released in 1976. And the studio musicians, uh, most of the studio musicians, later became known as Toto. This uh, album got a Grammy nod, and uh, it hit number two on the Billboard charts. And the song, Lowdown, hit number three. Um, and I'm really not sure what to make of this. Um, it's very interesting. It kind of sounds like a cross, uh, a porn soundtrack and like Starbucks mood music. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this, but I'm a lyric guy and there's not much there's not much there lyrically. Just this is not my type of music. It was I mean, they were fine, but the only thing I knew of Boskags before this was that on an episode of Family Guy, the you know, death gives Peter Griffin the complete works of Boskags. And Peter Griffin, much like Homer Simpson, if it's to the point where you're one of their favorite bands, it's a sign that you probably haven't aged that well. I like 70s funk, and this was just, I don't know, it did nothing for me. Oh my guys, I thought this was fucking awesome. Definitely not 70s funk. This guy comes out, I, I don't know what's going on. He's looking like that. He's got the girls. Everybody's dancing. The music is hot. No wonder it was a hit. Uh, stylistically, it's all over the place. Yet the, the lyrics sound like he's just kind of making them up as he goes along sometimes. And I think he is uh, a little bit. He's got that Paul Stanley kind of uh, riffing going on from time to time. But he's dancing around. You know, he's going back up to the background singers. There's blocking when he spins around for the the older looking dude, or I should say the balding dude with the guitar solo, steps front and center. They know what's going on. Uh, I thought it was sexy and positive. I thought it was wonderful and weird. I loved it. Big shout out to the flautist. That guy stole the show for me. Disco is what's really landing in New York right now. So this is mm. just coke-fueled madness down under the disco ball uh, on a Saturday night. Uh, I can see why this was just so darn popular because it, it just kept going too it was not a short song there was lots of grooving and dancing around and i mentioned the guitar solo and and the flute solo and the, you know showcasing the backup singer slightly oh yeah so next up we go to the uh sketch written by tom schiller called the snake handling O'Shea's. And it starts with Norman Lear in an office with his feet up on his desk. And he talks to the camera and he says he's always experimenting with new ideas. He resents the fact that people see his uh, production company as kind of a factory. So he calls in a writer. Uh, I think it's writer. He refers to him as writer 454 or something like that. And it's Tom Schiller who comes in dressed pretty much exactly like Lear. And he pitches a new sitcom idea. It's a family of blue-collar Pittsburgh snake handlers made up of a father who is a union organizer, a mother who is his boss, a daughter who is a nun, and a son who is a gay state trooper. And the show is called The Snake Handling O'Shea's. So we cut to the pilot episode. And this features Belushi, Jane Curtin, Lorraine Newman, and Dan Aykroyd. 
and it has a theme song, sung by the band. And this is just a standard family sitcom, but it eventually turns into a bunch of people handling snakes and speaking in tongues. I thought both parts of this sketch, um, Norman in the beginning as a producer and the actual sitcom parody were fantastic. Send in writer 456, got a great laugh out of me. I don't know if Norman was supposed to be dressed like a scummier producer as opposed to more like his typical look, but it worked. I wondered why, after watching it, why the writer wasn't, say, you know, Garrett, who had very little to do and wasn't in the next sketch. Moving on to the actual snake handling O'Shea's, I thought it was a fun send-up of really a lot of Norman's shows. And just the fact that every time they'd walk in, it'd be, oh, where's my snake? As if it was nothing. Like, it was so ludicrous. I would actually watch that show unironically, I think. I agree with Chili. I thought it was hilarious. The gold chains on Norman sitting back at his desk were awesome. Every actor in it is 100% in it. Lorraine Newman, dressed as a nun, freaking out with a snake. Worth the price of admission if the rest of this episode was trash, which it's not. My favorite moment for sure. Yeah, they also sold it. So well. I loved it. Snake Handler. Junior is gay. Snake Handler. I loved it. <laughs> it was fantastic. You were, you're, you're both right. I mean, they were all in. You know, kind of a kudos for 1976 comedy. Dan Aykroyd played a gay character with no affectation. Hmm. These were fake snakes, but Jane handled hers and it looked real. I had to keep double taking at that one. And there was just something about this premise. Chilia touched on it. I found it uh, enjoyable, but this is not too far off from some of the ideas I'm sure have been pitched around. And it was actually kind of a cool repurposing of their, you know, their basement brick set that's usually like nightclubs and stuff like that. I really like what 10 years later we'd have shows like Alf and well I guess even mm-hmm. before that we would have shows like Bewitched and all that is is a family of snake handlers that much different than, you know, oh this family there's a witch or there's a genie or there's an alien. Yep. I mm-hmm. would watch the hell out of this show <laughs> for sure. Gilda comes out and next week she says Saturday Night Live will be back with Eric Idle and Joe Cocker. And there's a strange man in the background uh, smoking and reading the newspaper. And then he rips up the paper in an angry way. And that uh, that strange man, of course, is Eric Idle himself. Um, this was neat, neat way to uh, plug next week's host with next week's host there, but without making a big deal out of it. Still prefer the Buck Henry, uh, he's disgusting from the previous year, but uh, this wasn't bad. Uh, I'm telling you right now, I'm not excited about Joe Cocker. Yeah. There's going to be two Joe Cockers. And I didn't pick up that that was Eric Idle. Oh, maybe really? I turned away, maybe I turned away at the wrong time, but lifelong Python fan, I must not have been paying attention because I didn't pick up on it. It was missable. So now we're at an interesting point in SNL history. It's Weekend Update, and Jane Curtin is sitting in for Chevy. And she begins with her own phone gag, um, where she's telling a woman that she thinks she has the wrong number. Um, And she asks what a golden shower is, and then hangs up. And she announces, I'm Jane Curtin with the news. So there's a few quick jokes in here, and uh, then we'll talk about this, because this is uh, something I've really been waiting to talk about with you guys. Gerald Ford seems depressed. However, he was just diagnosed with peanuts envy. Patty Hearst was sentenced by the judge, and she's basically sentenced to everything that she has said has happened to her while she was kidnapped. She didn't partake in group sex because she's a good old-fashioned girl who's saving herself for the right army. Lorraine is at Times Square reporting on New Year's. Jane realizes she's talking about the Jewish New Year, which isn't celebrated in Times Square. I really laughed at how uh, Lorraine said Rosh Hashanah. This was the moment in time when Elton John came out as a bisexual. And in a related story, Speedy from the Alka-Seltzer commercial came out as bicarbonate. He came out of the medicine cabinet. So how did Jane do on Weekend Update for you fellas? Let me tell you, I did not know this was coming. You know, I don't know the whole history when I pop on the episode. So it was only at this point that I knew that Chevy Chase was not there. 100%. Because I don't know if they're just joking around. You know, it's it's like wrestling. Uh, I, don't, I don't break kayfabe, but I'm watching the show. So to see her sitting there, I was like, okay, shit, he's out. And, you know, I love Jane Curtin. Uh, so I was immediately excited. I do think, and I would have to rewatch it, but I think she exclaimed golden shower in a, in a bit of uh, disgust rather than asking what it is. I believe she understood. I also thought her delivery was 
fantastic. I've been so hard on Weekend Update for several episodes now, and deservedly so. It's been boring, and it's just Chevy Chase is sleepwalking through it. They got the same Gilda Radner bits time and time again. So the, the formula is completely stale already, in my opinion. I shouldn't say the formula. The, this Chevy Chase version of Weekend Update is dead. It's, it hasn't been funny in a bit. Don't get me wrong. Some of the topical jokes, some of them still fall a bit flat, but I thought she was excellent. I was excited when it started. I think she flubbed a line here or there. You know, she played it off great. She moved on. I loved it. Great first half of the episode for me. I'm digging everything. If you found the weekend update formula was getting pretty tired, I've got some bad news for the next 39 years or whatever. But, uh... <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a nice surprise to see Jane. I think with Chevy being out, same thing. I was like, oh shit, he's actually out because otherwise they'd have him here. She did good. I'm a huge Jane Curtin fan. I do see, I'm always a little unsure what to make of Patty Hearst jokes looking at them nowadays. She did, you know, terrible things, but was she also a victim as well? But you can't, you know, you can't deny the fact that saving herself for the right army is a good joke. I got a good laugh out of it. Yeah, overall, I thought it was a nice change. And I think even when she flubbed, she recovered just as well, if not better than half of Chevy's uh, flubs. So nothing wrong there. And I'm always a fan of Lorraine Newman for her on location bits. I just thought she was fantastic. I can totally understand why people would be hesitant because the style is completely different. I think there's a few jokes in there, like the Patty Hearst one, which works better with Jane saying it than Chevy. Now, some of the charm and the quote-unquote cuteness, the wink at the camera stuff is gone, but I really like Jane's style. I wonder if this might have just been like an audition piece that they kept short for her. Not an audition piece, but this is her tryout. So let's keep it short in case she tanks, but I thought she nailed it. This is a welcome change for me. Should be no surprise to folks who've been listening since the beginning. Our next sketch, it's Chevy's Girls. So Norman Lear says they've been missing Chevy, and they just can't figure out exactly why. And then Lear does a pretty good pratfall there and says he feels better now. He sends out his get well wishes to Chevy Chase, and we cut to a song being sung by Chevy's Girls. It's Jane, Gilda, and Lorraine. And they're singing a song written by Paul Schaefer did the music. Marilyn Suzanne Miller did most of the lyrics, I believe. And uh, Jane Gilda and Lorraine may have thrown some in there. And this is a homage to a 60s women's pop group. And it's all lyrics written about Chevy. So in the September 76 edition of Photoplay, there's a big picture of Chevy. And in the background is a small picture of Gilda, Lorraine, and Jane. And over the top, it says Chevy's Girls. And there was a lot of resentment about this article. One of the women was complaining about it to Marilyn Suzanne Miller, who said, well, let's write a song about it. So this whole thing is a tongue-in-cheek thing about how these women are all in love with Chevy Chase. And basically, everything he does is amazing to them. So this is written very ironically. Years ago, or when I was doing some research at one point, I had read about a song called I Love Chevy that was written for the women to sing in a sarcastic manner. Turns out there was no I Love Chevy. It's this one they were talking about. Once I pieced together that this was the sarcastic one, I absolutely loved it. I wish I knew that context before I saw it. I probably would have enjoyed it much more, and I might go back and watch it now knowing that. Chevy's the star of the show. He's not here. Let's, much like Poochie, let's talk about Chevy as much as possible. Girls come out here, sing a song about how great he is. I've, I assume there's some degree of tongue-in-cheek in there, but knowing now that it was written you know as more of a fuck you not so much to chevy but uh all the attention he was getting i like it a lot more now and it's also pretty impressive knowing that if this was done after he got injured it may have been written before but if it was done after he got injured then it's actually pretty impressive to think that it's thrown together rehearsed and in a single week which is pretty impressive yeah but the girls aren't singers too let's get that let's get that straight <laughs> i mean oh, i thought they were great oh really yeah, one of them. I don't. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not the best uh, ear for that kind of thing. But one of them was getting a little shrill. But I don't know which one it was. There's a couple of things. It's easy for me to say. You know, when I, when I sat there and the, you know they did the magazine and they zoomed in, I was like, oh god, the girls are just there, up all small on the cover. There's something about the earnestness on their faces that was just like that was i felt it was a middle finger now it's it's easy for me to say that perhaps because 
I know how a lot of people feel about Chevy Chase. So maybe that's just in the back of my mind. But I I think if you go back, when you go back and watch it, that you'll, you'll see it on their faces. So then we jump to a Chiron where someone is mentally undressing themselves. And then we go to the Metric Leisure Week. And this is Dan Aykroyd talking again about the metric system. This is a throwback to last season's uh, Decabet sketch. So he goes through the, uh, the the new days of the week. There's going to be a 100-hour day. It's going to be a, a metric clock. Highlight for me was, Aykroyd says, will this affect my sleeping hours? And he goes, yes, it will. And then they throw to a dramatization where it's Norman Lear and Gilda as a couple talking about his day, or their day, actually. He was able to go all over the world and completed a ton of paperwork and did a whole bunch of things. Gilda got a lot done at home. The evening paper is huge. I preferred this to the Decabet one. Still not awesome, but uh, I, I thought this was okay. Dan Aykroyd in his staple almost character. Like he's not, it's not quite the, the sleazy guy, but you know, he's still got that that smile and that devil in the eye look at the camera. Or he's still selling you something you you don't need <laughs> perhaps should have uh whatever it is or the case may be and yeah when he said almost exasperated like yes it will big laugh from me i thought the sketch was pretty funny i really enjoyed it it was well written i didn't find it particularly funny i liked having the sketch in the middle there in terms of it did break it up a little bit I find this Ackroyd character a little strange. He doesn't have the sleaziness. He's not as fast talking. It's much more muted, I guess. And I don't know if it works as well as, say, his more famous pitchman. It struck me as very Python-esque in a way in the beginning. But, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And uh, kudos to Norman for not having his hat. Like, I know that was a sort of a one of his staples was he always was seen wearing that type of hat Mm -hmm. and i assumed it was to cover up the fact that he was bald but there he was he had his hat off he was bald as fuck in the in the uh sketch so you know kudos norman and i liked the gigantic newspaper got a good laugh yeah lorraine newman is there and she throws to a gary weiss film which is called yankee doodle slapstick and it's Gary Weiss, and he answers a phone call from someone asking him to sing Yankee Doodle Dandy. And he hums, and at certain notes, it cuts to cast members hitting things, getting hit with things, spitting things out, having pies thrown in their face. Then they repeat it again uh, a second time. I didn't like this. I have not seen a single Gary Weiss bit that I've enjoyed. Like, you guys have told me, like, some of the stuff he does is really funny, and... It must be like Clark Kent and Superman or like the guy in the pokeroo. And every time I go into the room, it's just a shitty Gary Weiss film, one after the other after the other. Wasn't a great concept. I didn't find it was even edited well, like having the physical comedy where it was, where it would like appear in the song. It was like it was off by a second or so from where I felt it should have been. It was just, I don't know. I just do not... At this point, there were two things that I did enjoy about this. Halfway into the show was the first appearance of Garrett, and he was getting hit by a pie or something. And I did like Gilda walking into the wall. Otherwise, this was just lowest common denominator. I get that there's a style of humor that is so much I don't care, and that's what's funny about it. But this guy, Gary Weiss, consistently has just been a bummer every time I hear they're doing one of his sketches. They're just awful. I hated it. (laughs) Gary Weiss uh, had one of my favorite moments of season one with Buck Henry shopping for toilet seats. I thought that was, uh, that's my favorite Gary Weiss film. This one, I don't like so much. I always try to watch these in my mind, in a mood that I'm watching it late on a Saturday night. And so I appreciate when I see things that are that they're trying things, they're strange, they're out of the ordinary, whatever the case may be. So I guess I appreciate the effort, but this is one of the worst Gary Weiss films that I've seen for sure. I didn't really enjoy it. I, I waited for it to end. Just the term, I appreciate the effort. Big thing I don't like with this is that it really feels like there's zero effort put in. You know what I mean? Like I do know what you mean. And I guess what when it and it, I guess to qualify that, uh, I appreciate the effort of the show trying to put on something bizarre at that late hour or something that is is a little out of the ordinary. Uh, perhaps not necessarily the effort of Gary Weiss. Credit to the show for for trying new things. Okay, I agree 100% there. I'll throw out kudos to his uh, his editor, too. That would have not been a fun one to cut. And I'm seeing mm-hmm. now I actually have a little note written very small at the very top. Gary Weiss film. Uh-oh, I hate these. 
And this this one, I guess, in that respect, did not disappoint. Your timing with the Gary Weiss films is is hideous, Chili. Um, there's a few you'll have to go back and watch because I swear to you, we're not <laughs> we're not lying to you. <laughs> I've only got I'm I'm you know I'm overweight. I've only got so many years left. I don't think I'll be spending any of those times going back to watch old Gary Weiss clips. I'll just take your word for. It. Yeah. So then we have a, a Chiron. It says not really applauding, just likes hand contact. We then go to the next sketch, which is called Violent Attorney. And it's John Belushi playing uh, Mr. Shaughnessy and Gilda Radner playing Mrs. Kaufman. And Shaughnessy is Kaufman's divorce lawyer. And Radner is rehearsing her testimony for her, her trial, her divorce trial. Um, and she says her husband gets drunk and hits her and the kids. Her delivery, though, is very, very flat. Now, Mr. Shaughnessy, Belushi, wants her to emphasize how bad it is and to really emote when she's telling the story. And uh, Gilda tries again, and it's just flat again. So my biggest fear was that this would be another beat. Uh, this would be another bit where Belushi just beats Gilda up. And that's basically what it turns into. Norman Lear comes in as Belushi's partner and tries to give some notes, but Belushi doesn't like his version either, and then starts beating Norman Lear up. And Belushi breaks character while he's beating up Norman Lear because he's not an SNL producer and because he's really sick of all of Norman Lear's stuff on television. I got to say, this was this was hideous. There was nothing good or funny about this one. Yeah, I'm with you. It was stupid. I see John Belushi just doing this, 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 I don't want to say character, but, you know, this kind of guy uh, so many times. I just, I don't like it. And I don't know if him smacking around norman is supposed to make him smacking around gilda better i'm not going to go up there and say oh you know that shouldn't be on tv i appreciate the place of things in comedy sometimes when they're used appropriately it could never get by nowadays but gilda describing this horrific abuse in such a drab monotone voice she was hilarious in it uh and it's something that you you wouldn't see nowadays and maybe that's what was refreshing about it everything belushi did and Bringing Norman Lear in, I, like you said, Keith, I kind of feel like he was only brought in to be like, hey, look, he's hitting a man now instead of a woman. Doesn't make it better. But another case of Belushi just steamrolling over a sketch that didn't really have a whole lot else going for it anyway. But I do give Gilda full props. Oh, yeah. Gilda was good. And even Norman Lear was good. This kind of violence can be sort of a, a comedic cop out. And and so can suddenly breaking character and starting addressing people by their, their, their real names. You know, I was thinking the only thing missing was nobody got hit with a pie, but we just saw that in the Gary Weiss film. So, yeah. there, was no, uh, there was no horrific fake foreign accents or nothing. That would have been the next step. <laughs> so now we go to Boz Skaggs and his second song, What Can I Say? It's uh, also a hit from uh, Silk Degrees. It only went to number 42, though. To me, this was... Uh, more of the same, really repetitive, really catchy. Uh, I wrote here that as a uh, as a lyric guy, I can't endorse this, but it is really, really catchy. Silk degrees. I mean, come on, that's a sexy title. I didn't like this one uh, quite as much. It didn't have the coke fueled disco energy of song one. You say I, I, you kind of mentioned it was more of the same. I totally get that, but. The, the the vibe of uh, this song they all go out there and they almost do the exact same thing so yeah there, there is in that performance sense it's more of the same this song is just so much of a lesser song for me than the first one what is boz skaggs i don't i don't want to say it was like casey and the sunshine band or anything but it was like teetering more on what chili said earlier this bad disco funk like you're not robert palmer but you're sure not david bowie I don't know. He's got it. He's got it in him. This song just wasn't it. Huge letdown for me after loving the first one so much. Yeah, about the only good thing I'd say from what I'm seeing tonight from Boz Skaggs is at least he's a job creator. 18 musicians got paid. 18 musicians got national work. Or, you know, to think that nowadays most of his backup people could be replaced with a laptop and you wouldn't notice. Yeah. At least, you know, he gave these people jobs. They got on TV and. Half of them became Toto afterwards. Otherwise, musically, I I will forget about Boz Skaggs tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, was he just randomly playing the guitar at just random times too? Like, it looked like he was, he'd play for a couple seconds and then stop. And you know, there was no rhyme or reason to when he was actually playing. <laughs> Definitely had prop elements. Yeah. It's interesting though. I mean, I can't 
say this was bad by any means at all. And this isn't even one of them, one of the many, it was kind of our catchphrase in season one, Matt, where it's like, I know this guy's is, 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 is talented, but it's just not for me. I can't even say that. It was just, this was really, really not at all what I expected. Our next sketch is Rhodesian peace talks. And it features John Belushi as Henry Kissinger and Norman Lear as his deputy, Charles Robinson. And uh, they talk to reporters about some peace talks between uh, Joshua Nakomo, played by Garrett Morris, and Ian Smith, played by Dan Aykroyd, concerning uh, Rhodesia, which had later became Zimbabwe. And I learned that from Metal Gear Solid. Basically, one- <laughs> <laughs> you literally stole one of my only notes I have on this sketch. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> so Smith basically wants to turn a two-year withdrawal of the white government into a 15-year one. Nakomo doesn't like this. Strife ensues. Kissinger gradually gets everyone together, trying to get them to sing. And Kissinger goes out and tells the press, peace has been reached, but the details are not shared. This had some fun characterizations, but I thought it was just not funny and not very well written. Kissinger, Como, and Smith were, were great characterizations with absolutely nothing to work with. Yeah, I totally agree. The getting to know you and then the sing-along bit, they went back to that well five times. I think probably the biggest takeaway I have from this is that Norman Lear looked good with hair. Otherwise, this sketch for me just didn't do anything, and it had a damn squib of an ending, too, with the he signed his Playboy renewal. Mm. It was definitely a one-of-the-last-sketches-of-the-night type sketch. Yeah, graveyard slot back there at the end of SNL for a reason. It's for the real stinkers or for something you just want to try that's a bit maybe different. Sucks when it's the stinkers, though. Our next bit is the family joke. Norman Lear walks out to home base and says he wants to tell a joke, and he gets a volunteer from the audience to help. Her name is Kate Brecker. He gives her instructions, a couple of lines to to give so the joke will work. She messes it up a couple times, um, and then he reveals that it's his daughter, Kate, and they throw to a movie. When I At first, I thought that this was an audience member who did mess up. Um, the second time she messed up, I was like, okay, this is a plant, and then he reveals it was his daughter. So, you know, good for his daughter getting on the show, um, but it was not a great segment, and I, I really wish we could have heard the, the punchline of the joke. It was fine. Like, I figure he maybe he probably just asked, right? Go up here for a minute and do this joke with my kid. You don't say no to Norman Lear. I'm a dad with a daughter. I think this is a cute thing to do. Was it was it particularly good? No, it was actually very bad. But I enjoy this type of crap because it's like, okay, you know what? That's something him and his daughter can talk about, you know, for the next 10 years or whatever. And that's it. Yeah, no harm, no foul. They had a bit of fun. It certainly beat going back to Richard Pryor. When he had his ex-wife do the uh, the story, remember her talons, her coke nails or whatever it was? Yes! Oh, I can't forget. <laughs> I would much prefer this to that. It, it depends on what kind of mood I'm in. So we now go to Spanish Peanuts. Um, it's a John Brister or Brister stop motion deal with, uh, it's more food stop motion, which seems to be a common thing in 1976. It's just a bunch of peanuts dressed in Spanish clothes. And they're marching and dancing around. This is the fourth or fifth time we've seen stop motion food on a home movie. Yeah, stop motion food. Felt like I was watching Adult Swim back when I was in college. This is the kind of weird shit you see when I, you know, I got class in the morning, but I'm a little too baked and I had too many garlic fingers. Uh, So it gave me a nice memory, but you know, I don't. I don't need to see this on SNL very often. So I liked it, but it was because it reminded me of watching something similar when I was in college. I didn't like it for what it was. It was essentially just crazy little super guy they used to have on Sesame Street. But was there something going on this week? Like, was there something in the news? Because there were three separate peanut jokes or bits in this episode. Jimmy Carter was a peanut farmer. Huh. Oh, yeah. Now that you say that now... That does ring a bell, but it just seemed weird that I guess they just went to the well too often. But I don't know, this was this was what it was. Bunch of leftists trying to get you to vote Carter. <laughs> it's all <laughs> subliminal. Every bit of it is subliminal. So then we go to the goodbyes and Lear thanks everyone for the time. Seems like he had a great time. He he definitely seemed like he did have a good time. And yeah, I had a good time watching him. Same here. It just he seemed like he had a blast doing it, and he seemed sincere when he said it's some when he said it was some of the most fun he's had. This might be his only real chance to get out there and perform. And you know, if he did an awful job, then no harm, no foul. He stepped out of his comfort zone, and he can always sit back and say, "Well, I'm still Norman Lear." Yeah, for sure. 
So let's jump to our epilogue here. So Norman Lear continued to produce classic television, uh, really peaking in the 70s. All in the Family, Maude, Good Times, Jefferson, Sanford and Son. He was a very prominent left-wing voice over the years. Sort of contrary to a lot of his entertainment peers, he's not one of these hot-button knee-jerk type people. He really sort of delves into progressive causes, um, regardless of where they're at in the newspaper. He is still alive. He is 99 years old, has no plans to retire is currently or has been for the last number of years working with people on a Who's the Boss reboot. He did appear on South Park uh, and uh, as well was the uh, consultant for a couple of episodes. The Cancel South Park episode, I believe, was one. And uh, I also missed uh, that he his company produced some films. Three of the films he produced are Stand By Me, Fried Green Tomatoes, and The Princess Bride. Uh, recently did an interview with uh, Seth Meyers on Late Night. Great career, and uh, seems like a great life. His daughter Kate, who appeared as a, as a, as a theater producer, Broadway producer, I believe. Boz Skaggs, uh, Silk Degrees was his best-selling album. He released a bit in the 80s and 90s, collaborated a lot with other musicians, but frequently tours. An older friend of mine said, uh, whether you love his music or not, go to a Boz Skaggs concert if you get a chance. He said he went to two separate Boz Skaggs concerts 35 years apart and they were the two best concerts he'd ever gone to clearly a showman so let's uh let's rate the host here for me norman lear was very good good use of a non-actor uh they wisely used him in supporting roles like the the role in the rhodesia sketch it uh it didn't need to exist but it did get him on screen this is absolutely not top tier hosting but it's a good example of how to use someone who is a limited actor or not a uh not a, not a regular performer yeah i totally agree this could have gone anyway but for me enthusiasm a means a lot and i would think of probably all the guests i've been involved i've watched you can tell he was enjoying it and he was not a like he was not a bad performer like comparing him to you know uh, say joe clayberg or chris christopherson where i've you know these are people who are performers in one way or another and they did not do a fraction as good as i think norman did and he enjoyed himself. He had some fun. He brought in some of his famous friends for the beginning. And they put him in the right spot. Full credit. I, I thought he did great. I know what you're thinking, Matt. I know what you're going to say because you have spoken before about your distaste for non-performers hosting, i.e. Uh, people in the political sphere or when an athlete perhaps will come host every once in a while you get a good one. You can't really trust the show, at least anymore, to use them wisely. You're absolutely right, Chili. I thought he was used very wisely. I My stance on non-performers hosting the show has not changed. However, this is a guy that makes TV shows, so come on, maybe a little wiggle room there. But I mean, that doesn't mean he knows what he's doing. It doesn't mean he, it doesn't make him good at the job, but it was just okay for me. Him as a host. I mean, obviously he had a great time and I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the episode. So the music. Um, again, Boz Gags, not my style. I actually preferred the first song to the second one, but that to me is almost like splitting hairs. I'm a lyric guy, like I've said probably a thousand times. So there's not much there, but this was catchy stuff. It was, I really, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't not like this. I, I liked it. Not my taste. I'm going to have to give them thumbs down, but I can definitely understand why other people would appreciate it, but it's just not my style. And yeah, there's just not enough there for me to wrap my head around. I really thought when I was watching that first song, I thought it was, it was such an interesting bastardization of like a couple of different things. Cause it was disco, but it was also that, you know, plastic blue eyed soul sound that was around in the mid seventies. You know, he's, he's very safe. I don't think this is very edgy music. When I think of parents saying, Oh, I don't want my kid listen to that. I don't think Boz Skaggs is on the list. The second song was a real letdown for me based on how much I enjoyed the first. Cause I thought that first was just the, the production and the song just so it was really over the top. I love when things are over the top. The second one was, I was certainly wasn't subdued. I don't think you could say anything about that was subdued. <laughs> after the mania of the first performance to see something a little more down to earth was uh, a huge disappointment. Boz Skaggs, a, b- a bit of a one hit wonder for me. Now you are, you are right though. Parents don't, stop their kids from listening i mean lauren norman lear even announced this is his daughter's favorite band so he's, he's cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> his daughter had her hands all over this episode so gentlemen what is your worst sketch of the night there weren't as many bad sketches in this as i'm used to for the episodes you guys have given me to work out on but 
I'm going to have to give it to the divorce lawyer bit. You know, some pretty awkward moments of, you know, watching a man slap a woman around. That's never fun. But I do give honorable mention to Gilda's performance and even to Norman's little bit he had to do. But yeah, I'd say the divorce lawyer was the worst. Same worst sketch of the night for me with uh, Belushi and his mongoloid shtick that I'm just that I'm just not a fan of. This wasn't funny. No, I agree as well. Um, I have that one here, violent lawyer. This is a dodgy premise, and 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 then to see her get tossed around, I don't know. And of course, I hate the met, random meta at the end. I don't know. It doesn't make sense for him to beat up Lear because. He's another producer that hasn't cast him. I don't know. just didn't work for me. Oh, what was your best uh, segment of the night? Uh, for me, this one is really close. It goes. It comes down to the snake handler's uh, sketch, which was kind of like a two-part sketch, which gets double the points. But mm-hmm. I think almost for historical reasons, I'm going to give mine to the opening. You know, I found it funny. Mm-hmm. Gilda did a great job. They made the most of whatever the situation was with Chevy, and they made something they made something work that would have been very hard to make work. Weekend update. Loved it <laughs> for the first time in a long time. I thought Jane did a great job when she flubbed her line. She was so cool about it. Do all the jokes land? No, not all the jokes land. That's just the, the weekend update roulette of topical humor. Gosh, I thought she did a good job. It made me excited to watch it again. The highlight of the night for me. For me, it was tight. It was close. Um, I wound up going with Chevy's Girls. Thoroughly enjoyed that. It's still stuck in my head. Now that you know the context, chill. Give it another listen. What would have been your second favorite sketch, Matt? Chevy's Girls. Oh, okay. I'm shocked none of us gave the thing to the snake handlers, but I think we all held it pretty high. There was a lot lot to choose from in this episode, both on the, the good and the bad, I think. So who was your star of the night? Uh, I'll go with Matt first. My star of the night. Shocking news to everyone. Jane Curtin. Can't say enough about how much I enjoyed Weekend Update. It really does become like a, a, a segment that I hold near and dear. Being reinvigorated like that again to see the segment uh, was a real treat, especially because I was watching it and it happened unexpectedly. She had some good lines in the song. They all did good in the song, but whatever. She still gets uh, points for it. And she was good as the uh, the wife in the union sketch too. I liked her. She had a good superiority uh, over her husband about, okay, we'll get you your 50 cent raise. Yeah, I just, everything I saw her in, I liked, I like her anyway. Easy for me. Chili? For me, I'm going with Gilda by a mile. She had the opening bit, which I was a huge fan of. You know, she stood out in the song about Chevy, even without going back and rewatching it. <laughs> and even for as much of a valley as the abusive lawyer sketch went into, it dropped off from a very, very high peak of her deadpanning, you know, this horrific abuse. So for me, Gilda took this one by a country mile. I had a rough time with this one. There were Gilda, Jane, and Dan all particularly stood out in this one. I wound up going with Jane. The big difference for me was we got to see her, how she could do on on, on such a big thing, uh, the, the weekend update. And she handled it extremely well. Like you said, Matt, great in the O'Shea's. Uh, singing with Gilda and uh, Chevy's Girls was was my favorite bit of the night. I, I thought Gilda and Dan also had great nights too. So overall, the big question for me on this one was, did I miss Chevy Chase? And the truth is, I really didn't. His presence was definitely there, but this was definitely a show without him, and it actually felt more like an ensemble bit. Norman Lear was good. Skaggs was great, but not for me. Update felt fresh. It was less tongue-in-cheek, and it was definitely more about the material than the performer. It was the jokes and not the jokester. The women showed some real chops tonight. They didn't do anything bad. Gary Weiss did kind of have a flop in this one. More stop-motion food. The two bad sketches in this were, were actually bad sketches. They weren't good. Even in the Rhodesia one, we had some good characterization there. I liked Eric Idle just randomly standing around. Ultimately, this show's first half was amazing, but the second half got really kind of weak, and it really kind of grinded to a halt. I gave this one a 7 out of 10. I think this might just be more reflective of the fact that I haven't (laughs) watched a lot of great episodes, so I'm going to go a little higher. I'm going to give this one an 8 out of 10. Uh, I think the things that I recognize SNL for, which would be a guest, weekend update, and good sketches... For the most part, they all delivered. 
Norman was a nice surprise. Weekend update, also very serviceable. I liked Jane better in that role than the last few times I've seen Chevy do it. And the sketches, with one or two little exceptions, were good. If you eliminate the musical guest and the home videos, I really don't have a whole lot to complain about for this episode. My favorite one I've watched so far with you guys. Nice. Well, you were right about that first half of the show. Talk about front-loaded. This was hit after hit after hit. And it just kept going. It was one of the best, if not the best, first halves of episodes uh, that we've watched yet, in my opinion. What a great week for Chevy to miss when the host is not a performer that's going to take up. It's not Lily Tomlin. He's not going to be in everything. He's not going to be constantly out there. The cast was, it was so nice to just uh, to watch them all do all the... I mean, where's Garrett? Let's, but seriously. Uh-huh. Uh, otherwise, I don't know. There was an energy to the show that has been missing. Credit to Boz Skaggs, that high energy weirdness of uh, a song that I listened to that kept the energy going for that first half. So y'all might not have liked it very much, but uh, it it didn't turn you off. I give this episode a 7 out of 10. So with uh, my 7 and Matt's 7 and Chili's 8, that uh, averages it out at a 7.3, which is actually a, a very high episode for us based on our season one rankings. The Internet Movie Database users gave it a 7.4, so it's uh, it's very close to what they thought. They ranked this as the ninth best show of the year and the 176th best show to date. So uh, this is this is a high one. This is a high, uh, a well-appreciated episode by both us and all the users at IMDb, I suppose. So I uh, want to thank Chili for joining us tonight for episode two of season two. Uh, thanks, Chili. I'm, I'm glad you are, are now in our, our, our five-timers club, but also that you uh, that you had one that you could really enjoy. Yeah, no, I like this one a lot. I mean, I would uh, I still appreciate doing the more uh, shitty episodes, but this one here, it's nice to get a little treat. It's nice to get a little bit of dessert after eating your veggies for a while. <laughs> and my goodness, you've had some veggies thus far. Oof. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back in about a week with uh, our good buddy Mark is returning to talk Eric Idle and Joe Cocker. How do you feel, Matt, about uh, Eric Idle and Joe Cocker? Uh, I do not feel very good about Joe Cocker at all. I'm not a fan of the music, and I'm not a fan of the associated act associated with our show. That's a particularly painful tear of SN hell for me. I am very excited for Eric Idle who I think is wonderful. We'll be back in about a week with Season 2, Episode 3, hosted by Eric Idle and musical guest Joe Cocker. But until then, we'll be overseeing peace talks in Rhodesia while the music of Boz Skaggs impregnates snakes here in Essen Hell. Hell.